0: but I think we can get through.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and I have fellow podcaster who's on a national scale, not some little rookie guy like me. <laughs> I have from Dad Rock from USA Today, half of the duo, Jim. How you doing, Jim? I'm
2: doing great. How are you, Jesse?
1: I am great. I, I want to tell you how much I really enjoy the podcast. Thank you. And it's a lot of fun. And I felt very, very good because I have, attend, I have been on several 80s podcasts. Okay. And I have always made the argument that when Michael Jackson's record company put out Thriller... They were hoping it would do as well as off the wall.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, that could be, you know, so you're referencing, of course, we just did an episode about off the yes, wall. Yes, you did. Which, which was really, really fun to do. And, um, you know, it's funny because I think Michael, in his mind, he felt that off the wall, i have I read this, that he felt off the wall underperformed at the time, even though it sold like 8 million copies or something like that, right? You guys
1: um, talked about that, and I was shocked. Because I remember Off the Wall being huge. And you guys shared that he had four top 10 hits, you Mm -hmm. know, sold tons of records. And it really did seem to say, oh, this isn't that kid from Jackson's Five. Mm -hmm. This isn't the kid singing, you know, to the rat. This is a mature, dynamic uh, musician. Mm -hmm. And. I just evolved, and I always pictured that the record company's going okay are we going to have a software slump you know he really came out of the gates strong with Off the Wall and then of course Thriller which went to whole different levels
2: Yeah I don't it's interesting you say that cuz I'm not sure I don't know what the record company was thinking you know obviously they had to been thrilled with what Off the Wall did and in fact if you watch this this documentary that um, just came out about Off the Wall that uh, Spike Lee directed the interesting thing, and I, this blew my mind, is that the Jackson 5, they left Motown and became the Jacksons and signed with uh, CBS Epic Records. And, um, and that was in the mid-'70s, something around that time. And there was a lot of trepidation on CBS Records' part on whether they should sign the Jacksons. There was a feeling, there was a lot of people who felt... That they were already like past their prime. That um, you know that that the Jackson Five that was all played out, and that it was a big risk. And that's just crazy to think about today that anybody would think signing a, a group with Michael Jackson would, would at one point would have been a risk. But uh, yeah, it just shows you how different the times were, right?
1: Well, yeah, because you know they're like oh they're the Osmonds. Right. And so this is not going to happen. Nothing against the Osmonds. I had um, a crush on Marie, and I thought Donnie was the coolest thing in the world. So um, I'm not throwing it out there. But they had shined. They were teeny uh, idols, and then they moved on. And uh, who would have thought that Michael Jackson, looking back, it's obvious what he was going to do. Um, great episode. if Listeners, if you have not heard it, it is just really well um, – uh, Patrick and Jim go through each song and kind of discuss it and talk about which ones they like, which ones they didn't care as much, and the whole, not only the music, but the era that this came out at. Yeah.
2: yeah. That, to me, was the most fascinating thing in sort of revisiting it was just that that album, and if you haven't listened to it in a while, it it, it, it holds up and it's so fresh, but that album captures Michael Jackson at just a unique point. I mean, you know, yes. as you, as you des- described, you know... He was an adult. He was 20 years old when he recorded it, and he was trying to shake free that whole kid performer um, image and persona, but yet it was still before Thriller that made him the the king of pop and the icon that we all know after that, right? So it's like this really unique album, and it's not trying to do like big, important topics. There's no Man in the Mirror kind of song on that album either. It's just a fun record, which is another thing that you kind of forget is that you know, how, how, how much, you know, Michael Jackson at one point was really just, you know, was, was truly just kind of like, like a hungry pop star, you know, and just wanting to have a good time and make fun records. So it was really cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was great. It was really great. And that's one of the things I love about doing the weekly podcast is, is that, you know, sometimes we talk about topics that, you know, I feel like I, I know pretty well already and I just kind of have to brush up on. But other times, like that case, I hadn't listened to Off the Wall you know actually I think I said this. I'm not sure I ever actually listened to it front to back before this uh the recording of that podcast, so to go back and sort of um do my own kind of like um you know rediscovery of something is really just a it's just a blast to do and I you know i to me that's one of the greatest things about music and separates it from other art forms is that that you can go back and rediscover things or discover things that were older that you know. You didn't that you kind of missed the first time, and I think that's harder to do with, say, movies or TV because they seem to be of such an era and kind of stuck in that era, right? Absolutely. Or you've seen it once and you don't, you know, you're not. You, you may watch it again and get something new out of it, but you never get that. To me, like you can hear music sort of again for the first time if that makes any sense. And it, so, yeah, it
1: totally does. Um, we I want to get to your history and your kind of musical. Journey and background, but I think you make a great point. Um, I graduated high school in 1977, so I am really an old man. And I was a child of top forty AM radio. Only the only the guys that did drugs listened to FM radio back when. You know, in my (laughs) small town, I've I've told the story before, but you know, I, I would tell my friends, but. You don't know the songs that they're playing on the FM station. You can't sing along. And they go, that's the point, Jesse. Like, I don't want any of that. Went through a little phase where I never dressed up, but I loved Kiss and um, just all the top 40 records. And when I graduated from high school, I stumbled across Beach Boys' Endless Summer Mm 8-track. And I'd never heard the Beach Boys really, didn't know anything about it, just picked it up because it looked interesting And was blown away by Brian Wilson's harmonies and and the boys and and a lot of the music, even though, you know, this certainly didn't have anything from Pet Sounds on it, but just the things. And I was just – my little AM radio guy was blown away. And that – in 1977, it felt like I was back in 63 or 64 just falling in love with that kind of music. So. Mm. That's exactly your point where it can be new to you and you could be blown away.
2: Oh, totally. That happens all the time. It still happens to me today, you know. Um, and that's, I love that. I love the sort of, the, the journey of sometimes, which is sort of moving forward or staying current, but the, also the sort of backward journey where you discover something and then kind of work your way back from there, whether it's an artist's older catalog or the artist that influenced that artist or whatever, you know, and that kind of working way backward I think is a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well. Yeah.
1: And my last point, and then we're going to, I promise that we're going to end up talking about Bruce. Yeah. Uh, but um, in a lot of ways, I think it's really sad how strange Michael got before he died, mm-hmm. because I think it takes a little bit of the shine off his reputation or his legacy. Right. Um, and, and I'm not talking the... Uh, alleged criminal behavior or anything—just how weird he got. I,
2: I agree. I agree. And again, that's why another kind of—I don't know if you want to call it a revelation. I guess I kind of knew this already, but sort of um, you know a re- a reinforcing um, a fact, I guess, is, is that is sort of with off the wall and thriller to some to a large extent too. You had the sort of the the. The Michael Jackson who was as close to being kind of a regular guy, right, as you're going to find. I think certainly with Off the Wall, that's the case. And, and again, going to that documentary where they had interviews with him and he's, you know, 20, 21 years old and um, just really like kind of humble and yeah. excited to, to just be on TV or speak to somebody, you know, being interviewed and he he really in talking about going to um, Studio Fifty Four and having fun and what he was doing and and it was like what you know by that point he was already a celebrity obviously yes he but, his but whole yet,
1: he had grown up yeah. you know under the the media and the concerts that's but right it is I think that's fascinating and I'm looking forward to by the way I had not heard about the documentary till I listened to your podcast and I went oh let me pull up my Fios app and I did while I was listening to the podcast. Uh, I at the red light, I stopped, pulled up, found it on Showtime, and recorded it using my phone app um, mm-hmm. because I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. It's
2: great. Um,
1: okay. So Jim, talk to me. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, what kind of music was playing in that your house when you were a kid and as you hit teenage? And when did you graduate from high school?
2: So. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Um, my lived there until I uh, went away to college, so the first you know, 18 years of my life. Uh, my parents still live there. I um, graduated high school in 85. Okay. So I grew up essentially when I – well, the music that was playing in my house that I can remember from like being a little kid and, yeah. and so on and then – I, I my, you know my parents weren't really into music. So okay. um they they were just old enough to kind of have missed rock for, to a large extent. Um okay. they were I mean they were they were young in the 50s but they missed the whole like Beatles, Bob Dylan, all that stuff. They they were just a little bit too old and the, and you got to remember and I always think about this too cuz it's so different from my own experience but like back then in like the early 60s, let's say when you like reached your 20s or certainly by like your mid 20s, you were expected to be an adult. Yes. And and music was essentially marketed toward like teenagers or you know, kids. And so I always think back like, well, I don't, you know, you weren't that old when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, but I don't realize like in a way they were, you know, it wasn't really aimed at them or, or it wasn't culturally especially in the Midwest, I think, you know, something you were supposed to be interested in. But anyway, so To the extent that they listened to any popular music, I would say it was probably, it was some oldies. Like by oldies, I mean like fifties, but not even. But mostly kind of like Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, or you know, like um, um, be another example, like uh, Dion and the Belmonts, or you know, some doo-wop and stuff like that. Um, Not really like the Sun Studios, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis. Any of that kind of stuff, right? So it was fairly tame, mild kind of music. Um, the I do. You know, it's funny you mentioned um, AM radio because in the '70s, my I did get a I did hear a lot of AM, you know, kind of classic, uh, solid gold kind of radio hits um, because my mom had uh drove a car that only had an am radio in it like it had like one speaker you know and just an am radio and so in in back then when you were a kid and being carted around on errands and all this kind of stuff um there was nothing else to do like you didn't like unless you brought some comic books or a book or something like that you there, you know there were no devices none of that kind of stuff so i just remember now it's so funny because every time i hear those like AM radio kind of songs or whatever. I feel like, oh my god, I know like every lyric, I know every word. You know, it's so funny how that stuff is just uh, ingrained in me. And then um, my dad, I- oh, and the other thing too is my dad listened. He, he did. We had an old console um, record player in yes. our living room. You know, it was like a big piece of furniture.
1: Absolutely. You did know, it and have had a TV into it included.
2: No, it didn't no, have a just... TV. It was it was okay. just the it was just the console. like console record player, but it's big and wide and basically like it has sli- like a, a sliding sort of top that you looked you would, across the top of it. so you would slide the door on like say the left side, and then you look down into it and that was the turntable. And if you slid the other side of it open, that was the where you would put your albums. And they would store inside there. And they didn't have a whole lot of them, but my dad was a big fan of Neil Diamond. And Barry Manilow, those were his two. And so, um, to the extent that anybody ever listened to records in the house, which really wasn't very often, you know, for them, that was that was what they would play. So it was, you know, so a lot of the stuff I heard was very, you know, it was not exactly like the most exciting music. Let me say that right. Um,
1: so my parents were, and and I'm borrowing the joke from Blues Brothers. We listened to both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> right, right. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, my mom did love uh, Fats Domino and Bobby Darin and this southern kind of early rock. I do remember my dad wanting to go to the record store. I remember him saying... I want to hear someone sing Peace in the Valley besides G.D. Elvis Presley. (laughs) Because we had, you know, an Elvis gospel album or something. And uh, my father never was a fan of Elvis. Um, He later grew up to love Willie Nelson and a lot of the outlaw country. And um, my mom has continued. My mom's still alive. And just uh, like about three years ago, bought something where – You can take your albums and put them on CDs. Mm -hmm. Um, And she just loves doing that. And she still has all these albums of these old Fats Domino and Bobby Darin and different albums that she says, all right, when I'm dead, you guys can sell them. And I said, I don't know, Mom. I may want to keep them. So you kind of had this kind of normal – you know, you're listening to the AM yeah. radio and such. Um, when you it was hit a, high school, what was your band of choice or well, what did you like listening to?
2: So that's what's interesting because I think so. Yeah, so all that music, that kind of music, it was it, pretty much exactly like if you were to say, like, somebody who had a stereotypical Midwest suburban upbringing, like that was, that's it. Like, you know, you couldn't yeah. write that any better. And then, um, and so when it came to my own music when I started getting into music it was pretty much top 40 pretty much well certainly in like junior high and through like say the first or second year of high school it was pretty much all top 40 and the reason for that being is that was pretty much all I had access to because I didn't have any older siblings you know I I, I always hear the stories about people who have like an older brother or sister and you know they go off to college or something like that and come back with all these awesome records and just, just blows your mind. I didn't have anything like that. Um, I had, um, you know, there, this was back obviously, obviously long before the internet yes. in in Toledo, Ohio. We didn't have any like, you know, there were no like underground radio stations or co- There was no college radio, nothing right. like that. You know, there was just, there was, there was no way to listen to anything else. So I li- would listen to top 40 radio or, you know, FM radio, like you talked about. Yes. And, that was pretty much it. And so the first, the first band, so I can remember when I was young, let's say like late elementary school, middle school, and this would have been like the late 70s. It was kind of, you know, it was a time when kids were getting into, the kids I was running around with were getting into KISS. Yes. And another band that I don't know why we were so into them at the time was Sticks sure uh, you know with the whole like come sail away sort right, of right absolutely uh, the, the grand illusion no wait this yeah wait yeah yeah the grand illusion i can't remember was that the name of the album i think yeah, it so is, yes. paradise theater was the one after right. that. right boy and then um um anyway so it was kind of like small steps very small steps into like hard rock but not really wanting to take it on you know all the way and then um Then, and then just tons of top 40. You know, anything that was in the top 40 was pretty much like I was fine with. And then.
1: So, Jim, I heard, I've heard, and it's, I can't remember if it's you or Patrick, but, um, you know, I bought most of my music from Musicland, you know, in the mall. Right. There was a smaller, obscure um, record store called Bookworms Apple. Okay. And he would. I think he also um, sold paraphernalia for other kinds of recreation, Um, but he – and he was also the first – he bought comic books, and he was – he started carrying comic books in his record store because it saved him having to go drive the hour to Orange, Texas – to pick up his book. So, and he did this. And so he had a little more eclectic albums. Mm-hmm. And if you got to be friends with him and, and I mean, Chester looked like the comic book guy on the Simpsons. I mean, he was always in sweatpants. He was, all you know, He had his hair and a ponytail, and mm-hmm. he would every once in a while go, Hey, you should try this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> did you have something like that in Toledo, Ohio?
2: So, no, not really. I am mean, the record stores we went to and that, um, there was one in the mall called Camelot Music, which was like a chain, right?
1: I remember that.
2: And then there was a, the, the the main record store I went to in town was another chain and I don't know where else it was in the besides the Midwest, but it was a big store called Peaches. Peaches Records and Tapes. Okay. And You'll it was like one, it was okay. it was like a it was a kind of place that was in like a you know, like a small like strip shopping center. Right. But it but it was like a really big store, like um you you walked in and it was just big and open, had like a high ceiling and um, you know, kind of like a warehouse kind of store kind of thing. And just like tons and tons of uh, record bins and really wide open and spacious. I would go there probably most of the time. And then um, then we did have one, so kind of sort of like what you're saying, we did have one like small little independent place called Boogie Records, Um, but I didn't go there very often. And um, probably just because, you know, I was, like I said, I was pretty much just listening to mainstream stuff. So like there was no real reason to go to any place, but sort of like the big store that seemed exciting. Um,
1: And I do think it's interesting. I hear so many stories as I do this podcast of, and it truly is the scene in almost famous, you know, where the, the older sister goes away and, uh and he opens up and there's all these albums. So you hear all these stories and I was the oldest. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of did that more than I didn't have that influence either.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I know. So, um, but it's funny too, because I have a younger sister, three years younger, but yet she seemed to never have any interest in the music I was listening to. As I got older, as I got older and got into more adventurous stuff, she never had any interest in it anyway. So I never even got to pass stuff down. But anyway, um, um, but anyway, well, one more thing about high school though, cause this was sort of the key, the sort of the, the beginning of when I started to move into better, you know, what I consider to be better music was when we got MTV. So when we got, we got MTV and like, I, I think it was like a year after the channel launched and I kind of vaguely remembered, I had heard about it from reading Rolling Stone. So I knew it existed, but I'd never seen it before. And, um, we got MTV, and that was just huge because they played different stuff. You know, they had like, they had stuff that was a little bit weirder. These, you know, British bands and some, you know, American bands that you'd never heard of because they never get played on the radio. And and in MTV's the only reason MTV was doing it was because there just weren't that many videos, so they were just playing whatever they could get their hands on. It wasn't like some conscious decision. They would have played, you know, you, you know nothing but big bands, if they, big name bands if they could. But, um, but to me that was so great because I was suddenly like, this is, you know, it just opened up a whole new world, right? I see yes. like squeeze for example, or, you know, the stray cats even, or something like that, you know, it's just like, wow, this is, this is really interesting stuff. So, um, I knew that that was sort of, even though I still wasn't at a point where, um, I was, you know, consider myself really quote unquote alternative. I, I do feel like the seeds were being sown right there. And then when I went to college in 80, fall of 85, that's when it all just changed for me. Where'd you, go to, when, where'd you go to school? So I went to Indiana University, which is a, you know, a big um, campus, big school. And, um, and as soon as I got there, one of the first, that fall of 85, one of the first bands to play on campus was R.E.M. And you gotta remember, this was like the pre, you know, the the pre like, you know, um, successful R.E.M. Right? This was when they were still they were they were still sort of a college indie band. I mean, they were doing relatively well, but it was before the the one I love and all of that stuff sort of broke them. So, um, and I was just like, hey, I'm in college now. I should do what college kids do. So I went to that show, and that was just something like, wow, this is really cool, and that really changed. Um, from that moment on, I was sort of, and that, and the influence of the other guys, you know, in my dorm, and all of that kind of stuff, is sort of like it just opened me up to a whole new world of music. And then from from then on, I think I, you know, just wanted to just continue to explore and discover. So it's been great.
1: What did uh, what you get, what you get your degree in? In journalism. Journalism. Okay. Had you known, you've always wanted to be a writer? No. No. Um, why journalism then?
2: Well, you know, it's a dumb story, really. Um. <laughs> I actually, (laughs) I actually thought when I was in high school that I wanted to go into broadcast journalism. Okay. But even then, the only real reason was just like, hey, they get to be on TV. Like that seems like a cool job. You're on TV, Um, and it seemed like you something that you could do to be on TV as opposed to like being an actor or you know something like that. Right. That seemed impossible. So um, that was really it. But then once I got to college, I started writing for the school newspaper um just as a way to sort of learn how to write and get that and learn how to report and get all that experience and so that once i started doing that i discovered i really enjoyed that and i enjoyed the writing part of the business and so um you know the working with words which is you still do in broadcast but it's different yeah, and it so is. yeah so that was it i was i was hooked
1: oh all right so 30 minutes into our podcast. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I know that I'm blaming myself, not you.
2: You know, we've been um, doing our podcast for a year. So you're getting like a year's worth of stuff. No,
1: this is amazing. Um, because I, I, I have a lot of questions okay. about the actual um, – that we'll get to about you know whose idea was it to do a podcast and yeah. how did you guys get it together. But um, for those of you who are going, hey, Jesse – this is uh, called Set Thing, Bruce. When did you first discover Bruce?
2: So, okay. So in high school, so again, going back to the sort of top 40 thing. Yeah. When I was in high school is when Born in the USA came out. Right. And I'm sure people know this. I believe there were seven singles off that album.
1: I believe correctly.
2: so. Correctly? Yeah. So... um so, when, if somebody who would actually week in and week out actually listen to American Top Forty, um, you know, that album was just huge. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't escape it. No, you know, you wouldn't want to, but you couldn't anyway. It was it was enormous. It was a big album. It had a lot of singles. It was huge hits. It was radio friendly. It was all of that, and that was really my discovery, of Bruce. Not to say I hadn't heard him before, because, you know, with FM radio played, you know, Born to Run and yeah. Hungry Heart and. You know Thunder Road and stuff like that. So I had heard those songs, but I wouldn't say that I connected really connected with Bruce until the Born in the USA album. It hit me at the right time, and yeah. and it was just such a huge record. So,
1: by the way, um, in my little small town, Lake Charles, Louisiana, specifically Moss Bluff, Louisiana, the suburb of Lake Charles, um, you know Casey Kasem's Top Forty was just mandatory listening. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, SiriusXM on the 70s channel will replay them, and they still hold up. You know, my wife and I will go and just like, God, this is so good. Uh, I wish the other channels would do this. Uh, They just – 70s is the only one that seems to play them because I would love to hear how he covered explosion that Bruce was.
2: Right. Um,
1: I remember – Peter Carlin's um, – no, I think it was Dave Marsh's book, but they talked about how after Nebraska, the record company was like, okay, we've kind of let you have your fun. Right. Now we need an album. And when they got Born in the USA, they were just ecstatic, and they predicted that there's multiple top ten hits and it'll sell. And I think the only thing it never did – was it wasn't a number one album because something else was on right above it i don't remember specific and it would be a better story if i remember the specifics but then it wouldn't be set less than bruce um so yes it was everywhere um so you kind of just start discovering when did you see bruce live the first time
2: okay so the first show i went to i actually uh, was may 13th 1988 i I've done some research for your show here. Went back and looked this stuff up. So, (laughs) um, 1988, the Tunnel of Love tour was the first time I saw him, and I was in college then. And so, so I had the Born in the USA album. I remember getting the Tunnel of Love album, and uh, around that same time, I bought, or somewhere in between there, probably I bought um, Born to Run. So those were probably the three main ones I had. Right. Um, for a while. Um, College friends and I, we went to see Bruce in Indianapolis at um, Market Square Arena. And so two things, a couple things I remember about this show. The... One is that we actually had to camp out overnight to get tickets. You remember when you had to do that?
1: Yes, I do. I never did, but I remember doing that. I mean, I, I've had friends. I a good friend of mine who passed away a few years ago did it for many times, like to see The Who or to something. He was his his then-girlfriend and now ex-wife, um, was going to LSU, and he was going to Rice, and he would drive to Baton Rouge to, to stay all night for so they could see a show and you know buy tickets but yes yeah, so you had to camp out to get your
2: ticket yeah free? so some friends and i we camped out that was back when i believe it was tick, still ticketmaster back then but the way it worked was like it, it, you could buy at different ticketmaster outlets you didn't have right. to buy at the venue itself right and um so we camped out in bloomington um and camped out overnight, and then were there to get the tickets when, it, when, when they went on sale the next morning and bought our tickets for the show in Indianapolis. And then the other thing, oh, this, the other great memory I have, I, to be honest with you, though, this show is, it happened so long ago that I don't remember that much from the show, but right. one thing that really stands out to me was we, got, we drove up to Indianapolis. It's like an hour drive. We got there really early. We, um, I believe we had seats though. I don't think we were like I don't think it was any if there was GA we I don't think we had it. But anyway, yeah. But we still got there really early. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this happened, they they opened the doors and they let us in while while Bruce was still doing his sound check.
1: Oh, how fun.
2: I know. And so we go in. I don't know how many people they let in. It wasn't it didn't seem like a whole lot. But um he kind of then, you know, played to the crowd a little bit and uh he probably did like three or four songs, and I don't remember what they were, except that I remember he did Roy Orbison's Cryin'. Oh. That was really cool. That, that was, was really I cool. And I, that still stands out to me all these years later. And then the other thing I remember from that show, the, well, the only other main thing I remember from that show was that was the tour where he did Born to Run acoustic. He was, he was like, I don't know what the deal was, he was like tired of playing it or something, And so he did it as an acoustic version, and um, that was kind of a big letdown. You know, we were sort of like, you know, we wanted to see it. You know, it was our first time. We wanted to hear it, you know, full on. But anyway, so that was it.
1: Jim, I make this point a lot on the show that just like every comic book is someone's first comic book, every Bruce show is someone's first Bruce show. Mm -hmm. And so they want to hear badlands and chant they want to hear you know born to run i have never heard him do born to run acoustic but that is one of my favorite versions um because i i think it kind of changes the tone of the song Mm -hmm. but i totally um i've talked about this my first seven shows i had never seen him do thunder road just wow worked out You know, seen seven different shows. He's never done Thunder Road. And then I ended up seeing three shows in 2014. I I saw the free show he did in Dallas for the basketball tournament. I drove to Nashville and saw him. And then you just you've never seen Thunder Road. Now you're going to over complain that it's three shows in a row. So um, that's great. How many times have you seen him? Six. Okay.
2: But there's a huge gap. Yes. So there was that show in '88. Yes. And then I didn't see him again until 2009. Okay. Um, now part of that was, of course, because he wasn't—he didn't do much with the East Street Band. No. For what ten or more years? Right. So and
1: you didn't see him on the Rising tour. No. Or the reunion tour. That's okay. correct. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, then I believe that was because I'm trying to think. I, you know, at that point in time. That was when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, okay. and I don't know that he he came there on right. those tours. And I, you know, I was a that was a point in my life where maybe not the reunion tour, but definitely the Rising tour, where I had like a young family and I wasn't like gonna travel out of town to see a show. So yeah, it just didn't work out.
1: Yeah, um, grew up as I said in Louisiana. We moved to Dallas, Texas, in '86 um my son was born in 89 and you know you're raising your kid you're working Uh you're trying to make sure you pay your bills on time and you do things um and so the couple times bruce came to dallas it would always work out we either had no money or there was a conflict with a family thing and so i didn't see him till 2002 with the rising tour um and and it was a great tour, but I would have loved to seen the reunion. Um, but you know, us dads, right? You you have to put the family first.
2: That's right. You go through a period, at least I did, and I think this is true for a lot of people, where um, you just don't get to go to a lot of shows anymore. You probably don't get to buy as many records as you would like. Right. You know, it's just yeah, that's that's the way it is, right? It, it but, is.
1: Uh, yeah, you're you know you're being a dad and. You know, you're listening to Raffi or Barney or whatever the... Uh, what right. I, I, You need to share this with Patrick. Um, growing up, my son born in 89, um, we got to be very good friends with Sarah Hickman, who is a singer-songwriter. And she opened for Brave Combo, which got us into Brave Combo, mm. the nuclear poker band. Yep. And so we've seen Brave Combo multiple times. And my son at five or six would say, Dad, it's always a good time to polka. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: funny. Well, you should, you should have Patrick on the show sometime.
1: I will. I do want to have them. I, I, I want great. to. That'd be great. Yeah. Um,
2: String theme fanatic, okay? And this show, 2009 in Washington, D.C. at the Verizon Center, um, I – um, I went with a friend of mine and we won the, we, we had general admission tickets and we won the lottery, right? Where you get to go into the pit. Right. So this is the first time, like I said, this, to me, it really, um, having not seen Bruce in, where were we at that point? 20 years, um, to get that close. It was just, it was just amazing. It, it that show just blew me away to the point where, and I always say this to people, I'm like, you can love springsteen on a record but but he's a live performer first and when you see him live it just it really changes how you even listen to the records it's just you have such a new appreciation of the music and that was really the case for me this time because this time i was i was just blown away um by just how great that show was and you know here's a guy at that point he's like 59 60 years old and you know just tons of energy which he still has now and um And it was it was just tremendous. I have the set list here. He did uh, you know twenty six songs, which maybe a you know kind of a short set list for him. But um, but he also did so. There were two things about the actually three things about this show that were really memorable. One was it was the first show after the death of his uh, road manager Lenny Sullivan, his cousin. Remember that. Yes. So, that, so he died in Kansas City, and they like canceled the Kansas City show.
1: Right. This was
2: in, and then our show was November 2nd of 2009, and so it was the first one after that. And, he, and Bruce came out, and he said a few words about Lenny, and then he said, and this was his, I don't know if he said this was his favorite song, or this was his favorite song off the new album. It might have been that. Um, but, he, but that's the way he set up the opening song, and it was Outlaw Pete. Okay. And he played that song and i know that's a song that maybe you know a lot of people don't think much of or right. you know it's not one of their favorites or whatever but to hear it was so emotional that night and to hear that song it's so funny because to hear that song performed in under those circumstances and opening the show like that and just the kind of like quiet intensity of the way the song builds yeah every time i hear it now on the record the studio version i think of that show and and it just it that song like means a lot to me now. Do you know what I mean?
1: That's um, that's really interesting. Um, I was never a fan of the song particularly, though I think if I had been at that experience, it would have meant the same to me. But when I bought the picture book mm-hmm. and read it, it, I went, wow, this is, a lot better story than I'm given it credit to, <laughs> right. which is sad, but yes. So uh, I can imagine that was a pretty powerful moment. It
2: was, it was great. It was yes. great. So there was that, um, there was another, well, there was also the first time I saw him do, um, Crowd surfing during "Hungry Heart," which I know he does like all the time now, but that that was a huge moment because I didn't know that was coming. And being in the pit, you know, and he goes like right by your head. It's like wow, like here's a guy again. Here's a guy who's a mega superstar, 60 years old, and he's willing to do that, put himself in that situation. That's just amazing to me. They also they also did um, um, "Born to Run," um, front to back, the album "Born to Run," front to back. So those. Um, uh, all those songs. And then, and you know, and here's the funny thing is, I kind of like that, but I kind of didn't because part of the thing, part of the thrill of going to a concert is the spontaneity and the sort of like the, the not knowing what the next song is going to be. And when they did that, as much as I really enjoyed seeing those songs and hearing something like Meeting Across the River, which, you know, never really gets played live, um, there was sort of a, it did lose a little something in that kind of knowing what the next song was going to be, but it's a minor. I
1: complaint. understand what you're and, saying though. Yeah. Totally. And then
2: the other thing from this show that I just loved, because again, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him and mm-hmm. uh, didn't really know ex- entirely what to expect. He did three songs that night where he did the requests where he has the, you know, the sign get you yes. know, a, a, an audience member sign gets passed up and he puts it up and, basically tells the band like this is what we're going to play and he did he did three of those just back to back to back and they were stand on it growing up and pink cadillac very cool yeah and that was just so much fun because not only because those were just kind of you know a little bit more obscure songs or a little bit more like kind of rarities in a set list but also that feeling of connection with the audience that like he's doing that because somebody wants to hear it just elevated it right and it was just a great experience. So, and then again, to see somebody at that level of stardom and at that point in his career, even to acknowledge the audience in that way. Most, you know, rock stars, when they get to a certain level, they don't do that. <laughs> they don't interact with people anymore, you know?
1: My wife in, is not a big fan. And when we went to the I Rising, yeah, she was not <laughs> impressed with the Rising. She says, he didn't play anything I know. Um, he did Cadillac Ranch and she was happy about that because she likes that song and so in 2012, um, we decided and I'm speed ahead regular listeners <laughs> this is a story I've told many times but uh, we wanted to do a fan we wanted to do a vacation just the two of us. Uh, we had been married um, you know well this year will be, 31 years we've been married 32 so you know we're getting close to 30 years we had not gone on a vacation just her and I in years we'd either gone with another couple or taken the boy and so we were deciding what to do and she was talking about renting a cabin and so I got her home I said I got a plan she goes okay what's the plan I said Bruce is not coming anywhere close to Dallas but he is coming to Cleveland She goes, so I said, well, my dad had died in 2011 and was buried at a veteran cemetery outside of Fort Knox, Kentucky. I said, we can go to Kentucky, do the bourbon tour that you've been wanting to do. Mm -hmm. We could see my dad's gravesite. We have friends in Columbus, Ohio. We have friends in Cleveland. Um, We can see them. We can see Bruce. Bruce. Then we can go to the rock and roll hall of fame, come back, finish the bourbon tour and then come home. Uh-huh. And she goes, well, that sounds like a fun week. I said, yeah. And so I started walking cause I am a man of size that doesn't like exercising. So I started exercising a little bit so that I'd be not winded when we did the tours. And she started listening to Springsteen. Uh-huh. And so when we went to Cleveland at the end of the three hour show you know we're walking to the parking lot and she said well he didn't change my life but he changed my concert going life i don't know if i'll ever be happy going to some other show wow because she goes those old men and she goes like max she goes i got a little crush on max (laughs) you know they didn't stop they just had so much energy and you're connected. Um, so I'm flying to Louisville Sunday to see my oh. second show on this tour, and she is bitter. I mean, she bought it for me. She, it was my Christmas present. She bought the ticket. She bought the airline ticket, didn't tell me. But she says, this is how much I love you. You're going to bourbon country to see Bruce without me. <laughs> so um, I, I'm curious. You just talked about seeing – born to run in straight in a row. So did you have concerns about going and seeing the river?
2: Um, kind of, although okay. not the same way. And look, and the- Oh, and but there is one more thing I got to say about that. Two thousand nine oh, show is that it also was the last time I got to see Clarence Clemens. Yes. Uh, so that, that should be noted too. Yes, and he really is. didn't, you know, you could tell that he, yes. he was not in, he didn't have the same, Energy levels, the other guys, and you could tell, you know, yes. he needed some help getting on and off the stage and so on. But right. anyway, it was great to have gone to that show and been able to see that. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So the river. So so the river tour. I just saw that show in DC, uh, right. January 29th.
1: By the way, listeners, I went to, go mm-hmm. back to the archive. They had three or four staff members mm-hmm. of USA Today all went, and then they did this grab bab jam session podcast of talking about the show it was so much fun it it you felt you could hear the joy you could hear just everyone talking about it it is it was like being there again so i i promised to quit sucking up but it i just want to share it was it it truly was we're not talking about this because we have to we're talking to us because someone's making us we're talking this because we want to and yeah. we have to get this out we've yeah. got so much to share so anyway
2: that's great yes uh, thank you for that it was really was fun and so um so that show was my sixth spring scene show i went to three shows on the wrecking ball tour um and then and it was funny because i was looking today those were all in 2012 i couldn't believe it'd been it's been you know three to four years since i've had seen him before. So anyway, so, so
1: before I forget, did you prefer the E street band on steroids, the East street orchestra that they had for the wrecking ball tour with the background singers and all the different horns? Or did you like this lean, mean you know, E street band that they've got on this tour?
2: That's a good question. That's a really good question. And I don't know if that I have a good answer because I, I really, I like the big band just because I love that Springsteen sort of loves that wall of sound and, and to have that just sort of blast at you and have that, there's certain songs where that horn section just sounds so good. And the backup singers sound so good uh, that I did always enjoy that. But I got to tell you, having seen this one, which has what nine? it's like nine pieces plus Bruce, I think, um, it, did, it, it didn't lose anything. I don't think it lost anything to me. It still had the same big sound and same energy. So I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I guess I'd, I guess I'd say I'd still prefer to see the, the full-on you know, the, the bigger one, but, but I, I maybe just very slightly. So.
1: I, I'm right there with you. I love that East Street Orchestra. Um, a couple of my people have been on the show called it E Street on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the horns and when they're doing Shackled and Drawn and mm-hmm. and some of these, you know, No Surrender. And there there's just all the background singers and especially when they're doing the audibles, when they're doing the sign request. And it's a lot of fun. But I went to Pittsburgh um, and I was – I was excited because it was the first time I'd ever been at the opening of a tour. And I was amazed how big they sounded. You know, yeah. I, I agree with you, Jim. There was not a, oh, it's a, it's a slim down, less complex. No, they sounded big. They sounded tight. And my personal opinion is that they, with the exception of Jake, um And I guess a little bit, Susie. Though Susie has been in the band forever, but especially the core members of the E Street Band are going. We only have a few more times left to do this, right? They, and I'm not saying any of them think they're going to pass in the next year, but when you look at the road ahead, you and the road behind you, there is less highway in front of you, even if you only, even if you live another twenty years, mm-hmm. and. I think they know this is precious and we may not get to do this that much longer and we're going to savor every moment.
2: Oh, I agree. But it's so funny you say that because I've, I've felt that the last couple of tours too. I always felt like, you know, Bruce, like I feel like Bruce wants to be on tour. He wants to play live, he wants to do it as much as he can you know, while he still can, right, while they, you know, while he still has, not him necessarily personally, but just, you know, has the band, right, and when members are dying, as has happened with two of them, right, it's, you know, it becomes really apparent that, that you, you know, that time is precious, and you gotta keep moving, right, and so, yeah, I I totally agree with that, you know, one thing, you mentioned Jake, and I will say this, that the smaller band, smaller, in quotes, right, Um, I felt that Jake really shined, right? He did, and...
1: the guys in front of Pittsburgh, um, I went to, like, the Fridays that's right next to the arena, and so there's a lot of alcohol and a lot of food and noise, and and a couple people who've had their share of tasty beverages said, the River is a big saxophone album, and Jake Baird put on his big boy pants mm-hmm. and bring it, and I think he did.
2: Yeah, I, oh, totally.
1: I, I think – and I – I feel like he has really come into his own and I believe the band accepts him and, and this is, he is part of the band now.
2: Oh, totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, certainly everybody loved the big man, but I think, I think that the replacement is like as good as you can get for the circumstances and the fans, every time Jake plays, they go nuts. They, they, they do so. It's like they know that it's not that they. It's it's in no way does anybody think that. Um, yeah, I think the fans, everybody, to a person, would say that they wish Clarence were still around. They wish he was still alive, still playing. But it's like it's there's something about maybe you know this this tie and this kind of spirit of Clarence that comes through, right? So everybody loves that. Um, you asked about the river, be playing the river all the way through. I enjoyed that. I think more than the Born to Run because, um, you know, Born to Run is eight songs and you just know that record so well, having listened to it so much, at least for me, that um, again, it, you know, it was cool to see. And I'm, I guess in retrospect, it was was cool to see because it was an experience, but um, with the river it's a little bit different because it's like 20 songs. And with that many songs, you know, as many times I've, as I've listened to that album now, you know I don't know that if you had me sit down and like write those out in what order that I could do it. So, it, so it still felt like I didn't I didn't know it quite as well. And so there were parts like, oh yeah, that's the next song. You know what I mean? So it was it was fine. I I, 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 totally I enjoyed that. With you. And the other thing too is yeah. because, because there's so many songs, you know, I felt like I was seeing some stuff that maybe doesn't make it into setlist a lot of the time. I, um, because of That too.
1: I agree with both those reasons. And the third reason I would add is I think it's very interesting that this artist at 66 is revisiting this album that he did when he was in his 30s. Like Independence Day is a song that I've never had this emotional connection to Mm -hmm. just, you know, I, it's a good song, but okay. But to hear him talk about his father, Mm -hmm. you know, as a child, as a young man, you only see how the compromises your parent has made and you, I'm not going to do that. And you can almost tell the implication, at least to me, as Bruce is saying now, then I'm seeing it from my dad's perspective Mm -hmm. and I've seen the compromises I've had to make it. It gives you a different kind of feeling. When he talks about um, I Want to Marry You, that's a young man's song. Mm-hmm. It it adds some depth to this album that I don't know if another album he did from back, you know, straight through would give the same thing. I love Tunnel of Love, but there's a couple of songs on Tunnel of Love I could care less about. Yeah, right, right. Um, but. I would like to see that because of the rarities, but this river I think works almost perfect for them to tell that tale.
2: Yes, I would agree. Um, the other, well, the other thing I thought was just great about it. The thing I love about the river, and and and, and you know, you were asking me before about when did I get into Springsteen and all that. Yeah. If I had a gap in his in his discography for a long time, it was. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, it was. Um, Darkness on the edge of town and the river like yeah. those two albums fell in that gap between born to run which is an album that you couldn't ignore right? right and born in the USA I know Nebraska was in there too, but um, Nebraska was it, it, that's kind of different but um but born in the USA which you couldn't ignore and because of the age i wasn't because of the age I was when darkness and the river came out they it wasn't something I, I really was gonna was gonna connect with yeah. and so it wasn't until it's kind of like we were talking about earlier how some you know you kind of go backwards it wasn't until later like post tunnel of love where I, and then in, when bruce was probably in those like what i call the wilderness years started to go back and like discover some of the earlier stuff and so now those are probably my two favorite albums i love those two albums yes. so much and so um and one of the things i love about the river is just how it has these two totally different moods to it. It's, yes. it's a very somber, serious record with like really weighty songs. And like a song like the river, just being the song that just like punches you in the gut, man, it's such a powerful song. And then these like other songs that are just total like party, you know, yes. it's just like, "Sherry darling. It's yeah,
1: just right. this thing. Um, yeah. my favorite river story is I was in Nashville. He did the signs, um, He did a Rolling Stone cover and, um, he did an Elvis cover. And then there was a sign that said, it's my 19th birthday. Would you play the river? And we're all looking just because it mentions your birthday. (laughs) I don't know if that's a, Hey, it's my birthday. Please play the river. (laughs) Um, are you going to get to see him again on this tour?
2: I don't think so. Um, no, it, He's coming, uh, the second wave of shows they announced, one of them was in Baltimore, and I kind of sort of floated that out there to my wife, like, hey, because, so you mentioned your wife not being a big fan. My wife is not a Springsteen fan, and she, and I kept, and she's never seen him play. And I keep trying to tell her, if you just go to a show, if you just go to a show, I swear you're going to think differently about him. You're just, it, it's going to be a, a different experience you're going to have a new appreciation. Right. And she just would never go. And finally she was going to go to this show in January. And then she ended up getting sick. She had like some kind of stomach flu or something and she was really out. And so she couldn't go. And so, um, and so I kind of sort of floated the idea like, well, you know, he's coming to Baltimore and those tickets haven't gone on sale yet. And we could do that. And she was just like, We're not spending that kind of money again. That was it. That was the one shot. So yeah, so I don't think so.
1: So here's uh, what you need to do, Jim. Last year, um, 2015, my wife trained to do an Ironman race. Oh, wow. Yes, she uh, competed in Florida in November, uh, had a great swim, had a great bike ride, and nine miles into the marathon conked. Lost everything Ended up having to go to the ambulance. We we rode together in the ambulance. She spent all night in the emergency room. The joke is, well, if you're going to not finish an Ironman, the next best thing is to go to the emergency room because you're so um, – So the joke was every dollar I spend on Ironman training, you get to spend a dollar on Springsteen tickets. So I'm like, don't you need a new mask? Don't you? Oh, no, you should buy the very best of these. And so uh, so maybe that's what you can do. Try to find something for her to do that.
2: Yeah. Yes. All right. I've um, got to work on that.
1: I think I'm going to save. I'm going to try to get you and Patrick on both to talk about the actual podcast. Because I'm fascinated how you guys got okay. to do that. And it, it's clear you guys have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. So oh, I'd yeah, love to love hear, it. and I think we'll use that origin story for a follow up episode. If okay. a miracle happens, you get a bonus that you didn't expect, or, you know, something magical happens and you do get to go, you convince her to say, Hey, that Jesse Jackson guy's saying he's going to buy us Tex Mex if we go to Dallas. Uh, is there anything <laughs> you wanted to hear that you, what's a wish list of a few songs you hope to hear? Them?
2: Oh. Well, you know, it's so funny because I knew that you might ask this question. And I was trying to, I was thinking like, gosh, I've been so lucky. I've seen so many of the songs that I've wanted. Um, But then as I started to think about it more, I was like, no, I haven't. There's so many more. So, um, you know, one song, we we mentioned Darkest on the Edge of Town. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard him play that song, the song Darkest on the Edge of Town live. And I would love to hear that. I've never heard him play Atlantic City live and i would love to hear that you know isn't that a Um, fascinating
1: for it being from nebraska it has become an e street band song they are so good yeah yeah. you know i've heard it i don't know if i've heard it live but i know you know i i've heard live recordings of it and they are amazing doing it
2: right that's the thing is i've i've heard i've heard the same kind of things i've heard live recordings of it i think i've seen stuff on youtube and so on and so like to me like i know i kind of yes. know how it would sound live because i've heard that so many times but Absolutely. i want to experience that myself you know the other funny thing i just not to get off topic here but it's
1: no 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 please it's
2: related i don't know if you have the same experience but when you see him live especially more than once or when you listen to some of the recordings like there's certain ways the songs are played live that are mm-hmm. a little bit different from the records yeah. and like now when i a lot of times when i hear the studio versions in my mind i'm filling in with those yes. little parts, especially like "Born to Run," there's this piano part that Roy Bittan plays that's not on the studio part, mm-hmm. but like I always hear it now every time I hear the song. Well, so it's funny. Any
1: anytime I hear "Hungry Heart," I uh, come on, you know, yeah, the yeah, little yeah. thing when they're singing the uh, verse, I always do that little part in the middle. Exactly, um, and. And on 10th Avenue Freeze Out, and this is the important part, I, I say that every time, yep, yep. much to the embarrassment sometimes of the drivers in the car next to me looking well, at it's going, It's funny, because 10th what Avenue Freeze
2: Out, I'm always shocked by how short the like you know intro sort of vamp to the song is on the record, because I'm expecting it to keep going, right? Anyway, um, but then the other thing I I love, you know, I've had some good success in seeing some obscurities and some track stuff and stuff like that, but... I would love to hear I would love to hear where the bands are.
1: Oh, yes. That's um, I was really hoping because it's on this box set that it would get in the mix somehow. Oh
2: that's such a great song. It is. Such an anthemic song. It's just awesome. I'd love to hear Living on the Edge of the World. I'd love to hear From Small Things, Big Things One Day Come. And the one song I think would be really, really cool to see live, and I believe this was something he did on the reunion tour. Um, is if I should fall behind, I think that would really be amazing, especially, you know, to do it, the version I've seen with that one video where different members of the E street band sing, uh, on the verses, because that's something you, that you don't, he doesn't really do much of, you don't really hear their other voices and many of them can sing really well. And that would be really cool to see.
1: I have thought about that often where little Steven has a great voice Mm -hmm. Niels has a great voice. Patty has a great voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, Gary Tallent is putting out a solo record due out in March. Uh, That's um, that I'm looking forward to hearing. And you would think, especially at his age, you know, I'm gonna let Little Steven sing lead. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so that I can go use the bathroom or I can, you know, just take a break. No, I mean, no. he sings lead on everything. That's right. It is, he's the boss and that's the way it is. No,
2: he doesn't even give his wife a turn. No, you know, at the he does so, No, he knows, you know what, that's, but that's one of the things I totally respect about Bruce is he knows people, first of all, they're paying a lot of money. They're yes. paying money to see him. He knows yes. that, you know, he could if he wanted to and say, and here's like a song off Patty's latest album and she's going to sing right. it for you folks. But he doesn't even do that because he don't. No. He is so locked into putting on a show for that yes. audience that he's never going to do something to, to detract from that, right?
1: No, I, I totally agree with you, Jim. Close it up. I, I've got just one or two more, and thank mm-hmm. you so much for spending the time. Are there songs that have been personal anthems or have meant a great deal to you, either gotten you yes. through some good times <laughs> or some bad times? Obviously, yes.
2: <laughs> so, I have t- two quick answers to this. One is that one of my favorite songs, it's definitely in my top three of his, is "No Surrender," and that's just because it, more just kind of like for the universal message of it, right? um And it's funny because in this last show I saw, he he played it and he set it up by t- talking about there was somebody in the crowd who was like a a disabled vet in a wheelchair or something like that, and, and he had pushed himself across the country going 70 miles a, a day or something like that and, and used No Surrender as inspiration. And, 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 and certainly, you know, that's an amazing inspirational story. I don't have anything like that. But even when I, you know, in just kind of anything I do, if I need a little pick-me-up or whatever, I think No Surrender is a great song for that. And then, the, but the others...
1: Before you go there, have you seen the Florist Brothers in Houston 2014. No. Okay, make a note. Okay. It's uh Go No Surrender Houston 2014. It'll come up um spoilers. A guy said I broke my brother out of class, you know, to go and Bruce gets these two brothers on stage and they stay for the whole song. They sing with him, they know every word and people that have seen it have shared with me they agree with me it is the definition of joy yeah yeah I can so, imagine check that out it's okay great. so it's great and that was, and that
2: was not and that was unborn in the USA and it was not a single there's no that's a funny thing is you look at that track listing the, the, the songs that weren't singles are all great songs too anyway um here, but here's the other thing getting sort of like tying this in in a way to sort of the dad rock thing is because I'm a, I'm 48 and two songs that kind of that I've found that I've really liked as I've gotten older and just because I don't know they just sort of like finally like I can sort of like get them and connect with them in a way is um, and, and, and I don't know that either of these necessarily are like fan favorites or what have you but again it just shows like the depth of songwriting that even songs that other people might kind of toss aside I think are great there's two of them so one is from the Tunnel of Love album the song "One Step Up," I think "One Step Up" is one of those songs that I think is just so expertly written about being in, like a, being in a serious relationship, right? And just sort of like the ups and downs and how difficult it really could be and how much work it is and how things don't always go the way you want it to. And anyway, I just I I, I think about that song on a fairly regular basis, just.
1: Jim you needed to be in Houston with my wife and I okay because it was a sign request we wanted to hear one step up that the band had not played it since like 88 or 89 yeah, probably. yeah. and he he they played it um now it was a very stripped down you could tell the band's like what um, so but Patty sang background mm-hmm. And they and it was absolutely beautiful.
2: Yeah, I just think. Yeah, I can imagine. It yeah, just, it just tells a great story. And, it does. And uh, you know, I don't think you know when I mentioned in '88 when "Tunnel of Love" album came out. There's no way I, at that point in my life, I was still in college, that I could have understood what that song really meant. You know, it's only when you get older and experience these things you get it. But the interesting thing is, Bruce I feel, always was writing songs that were wiser beyond his years at that time you know
1: well and i agree with the critic that and i don't know who from rolling stone or someone said you know tunnel the love is an album of a marriage breaking apart oh yeah totally and it is so if i had to go on record that might be my favorite
2: album it's well, that's interesting. That's really interesting because, yeah. because what I think is, and you and obviously you know you say you've been married thirty plus years. I've, yeah, I've been married twenty. It'll be twenty two years in May, and that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. And that's the funny thing is, you know, here's an album about a relationship falling apart, but yes. but as somebody who wants to make a relationship work, you can listen to it and sort of like understand yeah what not to do you know in some ways or the mistakes not to make right and i always go back to that line about um because everybody has these moments like when i look at myself i don't see the man i want to be somewhere along the line i went off track you know it's just everybody we're all flawed people we all have moments like that the point is to recognize it right anyway absolutely um and then the next one which um is my favorite song off of the albums he did with the other band yes um but as sort of, like, I think is a nice sort of companion piece to one step up is better days because the, better. Jim. Yeah.
1: You are, you and I are in sync. <laughs> Go, you finish your story. Then I'll tell my Well, I just going to yes. say,
2: cause that to me then is sort of like the joy of kind of like figuring it out in some way yes. and, 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 and understanding, you know, what it does take to be um, in a committed relationship with somebody and how great that can be. Right. Um, and, again recognizing some of the mistakes you have made some of the flaws you may have but how you know the but the the, the sense that like you know better days are ahead right and yes. and one of the things i've always always liked about springsteen just overall is his there's so much hope in so many of his songs even the songs that are sad songs there's there's a sense of like that things can get better right and this one just comes right out and says it but i think it does it so well and it just sort of makes you feel that um that there is a there is a, a great life ahead of you if you you know can yeah. if you have the means to take it right <laughs> right
1: um i i got lucky enough to be be the boss on sirius xm oh and great. better days was one of the songs i picked um and i for my previous job I had to fly to the Philippines we have a we had a call center in Manila mm-hmm. and they asked as a visiting director would you do a talk would you do a presentation and they wanted to know your advice you could give and and I ended quoting better days and I said I know it's a love song but I want you to think of it a different way I think Bruce is telling you that enjoy right now. Mm -hmm. I said, too many of us go, well, when the kids get older, then we'll take time together. When I get that pay raise, then I'm going to be happy. Mm -hmm. When I, you know, get this success, then I'm going to be happy. And I you're just sitting around waiting for your life to begin while it's all just slipping away. Mm -hmm. I said, you have to enjoy now. You have to enjoy the journey and I think that is a powerful message i I just believe in that, and that's what he's trying to tell us and i i, I preach that all the time so I think that's the, great.
2: I think that's yeah. fantastic yeah yeah, so there you go
1: okay, very nice um Jim, thank you so much. If people want to find you, where can they?
2: um well, right now I'm in my bedroom, so don't find me there okay. but um, okay, but the Tell Mrs. Jim I said hey and that you guys should go to Baltimore. Yeah, she's not she's with a friend tonight, so this worked out okay. perfectly. But, okay, um, perfect. No, uh, so my personal uh, Twitter handle is J Lenahan. That's J L E N A H A N. And so you can find me on Twitter there, or for our podcast, it's at Dad Rock Show.
1: And it's at that da- uh, it's Dad Rock Show on iTunes and Stitcher and all the other places. That's right. Um, about a new episode a week, right?
2: So we do we do one ep- one new episode every Friday. Those are generally about an hour long. They're on a variety of topics. We have done um, we've actually only done one show that was f- dedicated to Springsteen. That was when we did a show about the Born to Run album. We've and that's tracked, how I, I found track you on guys. That. Yep. We've, we've mentioned him and played some of his stuff on various other shows, but then each show is a different topic. It can be an album, it can be an artist, it can be a genre, it can be a year, and then sometimes we do interviews with um, musicians who are passing through D.C., and uh, we've done maybe about a dozen of those. So we have new episodes about an hour long every Friday, and then we do these other things called bonus tracks, which are shorter, they're anywhere from, say, 10 to... 25 minutes maybe sometime we try to keep it to that once a while we go a little longer and that Tuesdays with Mary and then then there's a new thing we just started called Tuesdays with Mary which is uh, once a week on Tuesday we have another uh, um, staff member from USA Today she's a social media editor and her name's Mary Nahorniak and she's just really into music and so we had her as a on for a couple of our regular shows and she was so good that we said once a week we should talk to Mary so that so really, when you add all that up, we're probably doing like three shows a week now.
1: I especially enjoyed um, your tributes to David Bowie and Glenn Fry and I we both I did episodes of tributes to both of them, and um, I believe it was either you or Patrick won, but um, Glenn Frey hit me a little more personal hmm. than David Bowie, I think, because of. You know the Eagles were the soundtrack of my high school. Mm-hmm. You either were Fleetwood Mac or Eagles, mm-hmm. and while I recognize both, I was an Eagles guy, and that was a really tough one for me. Um, and and I really have enjoyed y'all's discussion. Um, I I played the holiday one twice. Oh, great. <laughs> um, I and um, I've just really enjoyed y'all's different discussions of the holiday songs. And that was it. I really liked a lot of what you guys were saying and, and the stories you shared. It was um, really well done. And um, yeah, so I, I'm a fan and I, I appreciate you guys do great work and it's just very entertaining and, and informative. And it's just what a podcast should be.
2: Well, thank you. And i one of the things I like about your show, which I think is similar to what we do is that, you know what I think you get this is that, music really is about connections. It's about personal yes. connections and, and experiences and the way that like music can impact people in different ways but can also take you back to a certain time of your life, a certain experience, a certain memory, whatever they are doing in your life. And we like those stories as much as anything. We've actually, we, I don't know if you heard this one, we built a whole episode for Father's Day around just people calling in and talking about songs that were important between them and their dads. Yeah. Oh. I will have to go dig that one
1: up because that, that funny story, they were, um, the sports station I listened to here in Dallas, um, the ticket, Mm -hmm. um, had around father's day a year or so ago, the afternoon drive show did, um, songs their dad would listen to Mm -hmm. and they talked about it and I turned off the radio, picked up my phone. And my dad was alive at the time. And I said, everyone on that show was from memory. These are the songs that my dad would talk about. And so, dad, I'm going to ask you, what would they be? And, you know, he said, Willie Nelson and Hank Williams and Merle Haggard. And we spent, you know, a 10 or 15 minute talk about that. And so, um, yeah, I'll have to look that yeah, one up yeah. and I'll, I'll, bring plenty of tissue because i'm sure there were moments (laughs) that
2: there's a couple spots that'll get you in there but there's some funny stuff too and some really charming things and you know that's what music's all about man it's just about it's about uh having a great experience you know yes
1: well jim thank you so much um I, I hope you end up convincing your lovely bride that we really <laughs> actually go to Baltimore. Um, listeners, if you want to be on the podcast and talk about Bruce and all that implies, please send an email to setlustingbruce at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook and a Twitter account at setlustingbruce. Check that out. And I would really appreciate you going to iTunes to rate and review us. It's how people find us, right, Jim? Yes. Yes. It really is. It is just, I cannot tell you how important it is. Because, um, you know, they're sitting there, Bruce Springsteen podcast, and I'm 30th. Um, but that's okay. Um, thank you, Jim. This is great. I'm going to close this. Um, this won't be a surprise. Well, my soul checked out missing as I <laughs> sat listening to the hours and minutes ticking away. Yeah, just sitting around waiting for my life to begin while it was all just slipping away. I'm tired of waiting for tomorrow to come or that train to come roaring around the bend. I've got a new set of clothes, a pretty red rose, and a woman I can call my friend. Yeah, great. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Step away, step away.